right. And as you're seated, if you'll turn to Titus chapter 3, the passage that we just read, I kind of chuckled this morning as I was looking over that passage, not because there was anything funny in the passage, but Brian always yells at me because I give him these Bible readings with all these strange names he's got to try to pronounce up here. And I looked and I realized the congregation got most of those this time, so he didn't have to worry about that. But there are several names. They may, some of them may be somewhat new to us. But they're important as Paul finishes off this letter to Titus as he's writing to Titus in Crete. Again, Paul is going to finish this letter much the same way as he began it. He warns against false teachers in chapter 1. And as he finishes up chapter 3, as we read this morning together, he's going to warn one last time about be careful about false teachers. There are people, even in the midst of the church, that aren't teaching the truth. So be careful what you do. Be careful how you handle those things. And then he also gave out some personal instructions. Personal instructions to Titus on dealing with folks in the church and and how to bring people together and how to make things work in the church. And now at the end, more personal instructions, but personal instructions that are going to apply to you and to me as well. Instructions on what does it really mean when it says we ought to do good works. As Christians, we've heard before, God saved us so that we should do good works. What does that mean to you? Paul's going to tell us this morning what it means to him as he finishes this letter to Titus. And then finally, he's going to finish with greeting everyone. You ought to appreciate that. I always feel sorry for Greg. He stands up here on Sunday mornings and you're all still greeting one another and you're fellowshipping and he's got to get the service started. And I thought, I'm glad I gave that to him to do. To bring it all together. But Paul in the early church was the same way. They loved one another. And you're going to see that even as he finishes this letter. And the importance of fellowship together. And then he's going to finish with a blessing. A blessing that revolves once again around grace. Because a lot of this letter, though it's about sound doctrine, though it's about the church, though it's about setting up proper leadership in the church and handling the teaching in the church correctly, a lot of it revolves around grace. And so much of our lives as Christians revolve around grace. And so Paul's going to hit all these things as he finishes up. Now, as he finishes up this letter, in verse 9, he begins with one small word that we have to get the significance of, or we're not going to see what he's doing here at the end of the letter. It's like, why finish the letter like this? It's kind of on a negative connotation when we get into verses 9, 10, and 11 about all these false teachers and divisiveness and how we handle all those things. And yet there's one word that explains it all in verse 9 when he says, but. But. But what? What's he contrasting here? He's contrasting the teaching in verse 8. And again, we did this like three weeks ago now after we spent a week on... Easter and then the week before that on salvation in verses 4 through 7, we barely touched on verse 8. But verse 8, he says this, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Titus was to confidently and without hesitation, he said, I tell you the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things. So confidently and without hesitation, Paul said, you need to remind people to do good works. To live like they're actually people who have experienced the grace of God in their lives. To take the grace of God that they've experienced and to use it to minister to other folks. We love grace when we talk about ourselves, don't we? Where would you be today without the grace of God? I love the topic of grace. God's grace. God bestowing upon me things that I don't deserve. You know, most of our prayers are filled with requests for grace when you think about it. We want God to do things for us. 
Does God owe us anything? When you think about the fact of what Jesus Christ, we just commemorated the passion when Jesus Christ died on Calvary for your sin and mine. He rose again, and part of that rising again is to give us hope that we too will rise again. If God stopped there, does he owe us anything? And yet, how often do we go to prayer and say, God, I need strength for this, and God says, that's what I'm here for. God, I need help with this, and the Spirit of God ministers to our heart and helps us with those things. Lord, this person needs to be healed, and that person's having financial problems, and and this person's having emotional issues that they're dealing with, and God, we need you to help, and what does God do? God graciously responds to those things. We love grace in that perspective, but part of the reason that God gives us that grace is so that we will devote ourselves to, Paul puts it this way, to doing good works, but it's to being gracious with other people. When we look at good works, often we think, well, I'll just do the right thing today, and that's good. But when Paul's talking about good works here, at the end of the book of Titus, he's talking about gracious works, works that other people don't necessarily deserve. That's a little bit more difficult. I love doing nice things for people who do nice things for me, don't you? You know, somebody has us over for dinner, we love having them back over for dinner. Somebody helps me work on something, I love reciprocating. But what about somebody who ignores you when you have a need and then they have one? What do you do? Good works says we reach out graciously and we do for them whatever we can. And so Paul's going to kind of deal with that. And that's why this big but is here because he's saying, you have received grace and mercy. And because of that, you need to live lives of good works. And if you do that, your life will be excellent and profitable for people. How many times have you heard folks, whether on the media or talking to them one-on-one, say, you know, I want my life to count for something. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. You want your life to be profitable? You want it to be excellent? You want it to count for something? Then you do good works and you do it by grace. You minister to people not because they deserve it, but mostly because they don't. We graciously reach out to people. And I'm still learning. And you're still learning. But we ought to be learning in the right way because grace did that for us. How many of us think that God looks down in the morning and just says, you know, that is such a wonderful guy or a wonderful gal. I need to do something wonderful for them today. We, We think like that, but that's not who we are. When God does something wonderful, it's because of his grace. If you are wonderful at all, it's because of his grace. And so we're looking at all this, and then Paul says, but in the midst of that, I've got some things to tell you about this impact of grace and mercy on your lives. And the first one is avoid divisive issues and divisive people. Now, I was all excited preaching about grace, and suddenly we get divisive issues and divisive people. It's hard to get excited about preaching about divisive issues and divisive people. And I had to pray about it until I realized it's part of grace. It's part of how we minister together as a body of Christ and grace. And what he says here is, but what? As we endeavor to live lives of grace and mercy, what are we to be on guard for? What can mess up living gracious lives according to the will of God? He says, one of those things, be careful, because even in the church, he says, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. You remember the reason way back in chapter 1 that Titus was in Crete in the first place? If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, I want you to put in order what remains and appoint elders in every town. And then verses 9 through 11 of that chapter, he says, Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Because many are those who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. And so Paul looked at Titus and he says, here's your job. You've got to take divisive, false teaching people who like to hear themselves talk, and you've got to stop it. You've got to put it to an end because what they're doing is destroying families by false teaching. By teaching stuff that's not in this book or adding to stuff for what's in this book. Extra requirements. And it's harmful to the church. And so as Titus thought about this and as God was working to make him do this, he finishes this letter by saying, but avoid. Now, we just talked about being gracious. Most of the time when we look at this idea of avoiding, we get this little cringe and say, oh, that doesn't sound like a right thing to do. Why would we avoid? But Paul is telling Titus there are some things, some people, some actions that need to be avoided because they're not good for the church. They're not good for you. And that word avoid means to deliberately shun and stand aloof. You know, I looked it up and I thought, oh, I'll look this up in the Greek because it can't mean what I think it means. That, that, that looks like it's being a little bit too harsh. It's being a little bit too nasty. Avoid. It literally means to shun and stand aloof from to hide in your garage until it goes by kind of an idea. And I looked at that and I said, well, what's so important that we need to be hiding from it, shunning it? And what's such a problem here? Well, number one, Paul said, avoid foolish controversies. Now that word's very colorful in the Greek. The word foolish is the word morose. We get the word moron from it. And it means to be foolish, to be devoid of wisdom or of good sense or of sound judgment. And Paul is trying to tell Titus here, you need to avoid foolish, what, controversies. Now, the idea, the word in Greek for controversies used to just mean discussions. But by Paul's day, it meant not only discussions, but discussions that especially were controversial and contentious. The idea of the controversies here, the foolish controversies, are things that were expressing forceful opinions, differences of opinion, without necessarily having a presumed goal or seeking a solution. I'm going to give you my opinion just because it's mine. And I want you to hear it. Not only do I want you to hear my opinion, I want you to acknowledge that I am right. And if you don't agree with me, you are wrong. And that's the purpose of it. And there are things in the church that could come up that people start talking about and say, you know what? People are normally, some people can be a little bit proud. And so they bring up controversies. Because they've studied this one. They know what's needed, and, and, and it's something foolish. It's something ridiculous. But they want to argue with you about it, and they want to argue about little points in, in the Scriptures. Are there things in this book that are hard to understand, and are there some things that God just doesn't give us the answer to? If somebody wants to argue about those things with you, avoid it. Because that's not what it's there for. And Paul's saying, be careful. Was it just a problem that Titus had in Crete? No, if you look at First Timothy, and we'll just read, look at a few verses... They had the same problem in Ephesus. And it's interesting because what's the difference between the church, churches in Crete and the church in Ephesus? Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus discipling people. 
setting up the same kind of elders that he's trying to get Titus to set up as he's in Crete. And so as he writes to Timothy here in Ephesus, he says, be careful of these things. First Timothy chapter one, verse three, there may charge certain people not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations. It's that same word as the controversies that he gave to Titus rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith which inevitably result in vain discussion. The problem with these things is Paul is looking at Titus. Paul had written out to Timothy and said, don't get caught up in arguing about senseless things because they distract you from what's really important. They distract you from living in lives that are lives of grace. So don't be debating for debate's sake. You know, I, I used to do that. I didn't do it really well. But when I was, guys in seminary do this all the time. They pick up the most interesting pieces of theology that are so hard and difficult to understand and they grab a school of thought and then they sit for hours and they discuss it and you know most of those guys that's all they do is sit and discuss it for hours when they ought to be sharing the gospel when they ought to be discipling other people in their vicinity when they ought to get busy doing for god and instead they're busy discussing vain discussions because at the end of the day they don't resolve anything here's one of the debates and i'm not going to get into it with you but predestination election theologians love to discuss that at the end of the day it'll change anybody's mind god's still going to be god and you're still responsible and you better take out the gospel or you're disobedient and they're not doing it because they're busy discussing it and you say well isn't that an important thing well it's important to decide to understand the doctrine but it's not important to sit there and just discuss it over and over and over again ad nauseum And so here you've got this going on, and Paul says, be careful, don't let this happen, Titus, in your churches, because you've got Judaizers in there, and part of what they're interested in are genealogies. And again, are genealogies in the Scripture important, or aren't they? Don't hear me wrong, they're important. Okay, why is the genealogy in the book of Matthew? It's there to show us the lineage of Christ. Here he is. He is the king, and he's rightfully the king. He's the prophet, the priest, the king. And the genealogy proves it. And they're there for a reason. But that's not what the Jewish folks did with those genealogies. They had all kinds of myths. Or they tied themselves to all kinds of people. Why am I important? That genealogy in Matthew is not there to show you why you're important. It's to show you why he's important. And so Paul's saying, don't get involved in all this genealogical discussion. And it's not the first time. He told Timothy the same thing in Ephesus. Don't let them get involved in that because it doesn't serve a purpose. We started a study not long ago. Well, actually, it was long ago now. In Revelation on Wednesday night. You know, one of my biggest concerns was we can get there in Revelation. There are things in the book of Revelation that you're just not going to figure every single iota in detail out because God didn't give it to us. But don't we like to discuss them? Don't we like to speculate? You know, well, look at this. The mark of the beast has got to be. If I had a dollar for every article on what the mark of the beast was, I could retire. And people discuss it. It's, again, I'm not wanting to pick on that, but that's one area we think, well, it's discussing Revelation. And sure it is, but you're discussing, you're not discussing the Lord of Revelation. He's coming again. You want to discuss his return? That's worth discussing. You want to discuss the fact that he's going to set up his kingdom? That's worth discussing. You want to discuss the fact that we're no longer going to be despicable people? We're going to have glorified bodies living without sin for all of eternity? That's worth discussing. But if you want to figure out how we're going to get the mark of the beast and what it's going to look like, that's not worth discussing. And so Paul is saying, be careful because genealogies and these little pieces come up. And what they do is breed the next word, dissensions. 
It's kind of a self-centered rivalry or contentiousness about the truth. We find something that doesn't matter and we've got to argue for our point of view. And we've got to be right so we get really contentious about it. And the rest of you ignorant Christians need to come along and think like I do. That's how we think. And Paul's saying, that doesn't have a part in the church. And it leads to, which what is what Titus was really dealing with in, in extensive ways in this church, quarrels about the law. Again, there was an extensive uh, group of Jewish Christians and Jewish believers in that church in Crete. They had probably come over from Pentecost and been one to the Lord. And then first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas come through Crete and they're winning folks to the Lord. And they're winning a lot of Jewish folks to the Lord. And what do they want to do? If you want to be right with God, you have to do what? You've got to keep the law and accept Christ. And Paul's saying, Titus, don't get in big discussions about that. We already did. Go back to Acts chapter 15. We had a council back in Jerusalem when we said, that's just not true. The gospel sets you free. Not free to do whatever you want, but free to live for God the way we ought to. And we don't have to go through all of those. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to make all those sacrifices. He is the sacrifice. All of those things that were being debated. And he says to Titus, don't waste your time fighting over that stuff. Well, the problem is, I can decide not to fight over that stuff, but what about the guy who believes it? What about the guy who brings it back to my church every Sunday and starts arguing with people about it? How do we deal with that? Because Paul says if you do these things at the end of this first verse here in 9, they are unprofitable and worthless. There's no spiritual benefit. There's no constructive results. So avoid that fruitlessness. So what do we have to do if this is the problem? Well, this is another thing that, that bothers us. Because most people are somewhat gracious and kind at heart. Sometimes. And we don't like to be mean and nasty. And we read verse 10, and what does it say? Say, What does it say to us? As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So Paul's saying avoid divisive issues, but also avoid divisive people. Ouch. Doesn't that sound harsh? Paul's looking at the good of the church and telling Titus, if folks won't give up their discussions of things that are worthless and they're causing division and strife in the church, the unity of the body and moving forward for Christ and exemplifying what grace is supposed to be and doing good works is so important, you cannot put up with that. And he says, so what what do you do? Throw the divisive person out. Not, Not so quick. He says, after warning him once, shouldn't once be enough. How many of you remember when you were parents? I know it's getting further back from some of you. Now, nobody raised your hand. I know that's a lie. Some of you still remember. Some of you probably don't. But you know, remember when you were parents and your kids did something wrong. And what did you do? You corrected them. You told them, hey, you guys ever get that? You're not supposed to do that anymore. Stop doing that. And what does a parent expect? Once is enough. If I told you once, you ever, you ever hear yourself? You know, I hear myself sounding like my parents sometimes and it scares me. If I've told you once, I've told you. See, you use the same phrase because we expected it to take once and Paul doesn't even expect that. He says, warn them once. If they don't get it, graciously go back and warn them a second time. Because what is the goal of this? If you've got a divisive person in your church who just likes to stir stuff up all the time, what's the goal? We want to restore them. We want them to be part of the fellowship. We want them to quit being divisive and start being more unified. Not that they can't have opinions, but let's get away from the stuff Paul said to avoid. And so 
do your best. But then after the second time, if you get to the point where you're looking at that divisive member and say, if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, you know who's being disobedient? You've got to point the finger back here. Because Paul said, after the second time, living by grace, doing good works, reaching out and ministering to other people is so important that you can't get sidetracked. And Paul said, after the second time, you need to shun them. You need to avoid them. He puts it this way. Have nothing more to do with him. Well, that's got to mean something else in the Greek, right? You know what it means in the Greek? Have nothing more to do with him. Ouch! Why? Paul said, you can't have division. You can't have division, especially over unimportant things. If you've got to divide over doctrine, there's a problem. That needs to be taken. If you're dividing over unimportant preferential things or things that just don't matter, Paul's saying, you've got to get that out of the church. Because we are a unified body of Christ. We ought to be loving one another and caring for one another and loving and caring for others as a result. And he said, you just can't leave that in the church. And it's like, Paul, that sounds unloving. Paul said, that's what you've got to do because it's not your church. It's his church. And he loves that person too much to let them remain the way they are. It needs to be changed. And maybe you as a church will be the agent of God to change that. Are we willing to be obedient? And again, don't be that divisive person. Because what does he say about that person? Verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. Now, what is the problem that leads to these discussions, these endless discussions about unimportant points? It's usually pride. Arrogance. I know all about that unimportant point. Let me tell you about it. And Paul says they're warped. They've gotten all out of kilter. They're not living in grace, they're living in self-importance, and they want to argue, and they want to be right, and they want you to acknowledge that they're right. And Paul said, that's a problem, and not only that, but they are self-condemned. Well, Paul, what do you mean by they're self-condemned? He's putting it this way. He's looking at these people, and they're saying, if they're so busy being divisive that they can't experience grace, they're putting out a picture to everybody that they haven't experienced grace. They're condemning themselves. Because what is a Christian supposed to look like according to Paul? He's gone through all of this in chapter 2 about the fact that grace appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Teaching us what? That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this world. Not divisive. Not having to be right all the time. And so Paul looks and he says they're self-condemned because they're proving the fact that grace hasn't changed their lives. Isn't that a sad verdict? Do you ever want to stand before God self-condemned one day? You did it. You lived like that. I told you what grace was supposed to do, and it didn't do it, and you didn't seem to care. You're self-condemned. And we struggle with these commands to avoid, to shun, to put away, and yet Paul is trying to teach us that the gospel and grace and the body living in unity is such a testimony of who our Savior is that we can't avoid taking care of dissension if it comes in our midst. Now, I'm not aware of a lot of dissension in our body, but it can happen. If you look over the past and history of most churches, there's been a time when somebody was pushing something that shouldn't have been pushed. How do we deal with it? Do we take care of it in a biblical manner? And again, there's a difference between needing to divide and loving to divide. Divisive people love to divide. Godly people, though it hurts at the bottom of their heart, need to divide if they won't come around to the truth. 
And that's the difference. There's a whole difference there. There's grace that makes the difference there. And so Paul said it this way when he talked about men and ministers of God. We ought to be people who must not strive. We ought to be peaceable and gentle. And he says here in, in, uh, later on, he stands where he must, but he takes no delight in debates, but does not make them a priority of the life of ministry. Even the pastor and the leaders in the church shouldn't have to always be right about things that don't matter. And he looks and he says, what should we be known as? Peaceable, gentle, Christ-like. Could we say gracious? Because grace has impacted our lives. And that's what ought to be what characterizes it. That's why this is so important if we don't do this. Now, how do we take this and apply it to our everyday lives? Well, Paul's going to give them just a couple of uh, illustrations here. Number one, assist the ministers of God, the people who are doing God's work. He says here in chapter 3, verse 12, he's talking to Titus again. He said, when I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Paul looks, he says, assist people who are doing God's work. It doesn't have to be the preacher. Anybody who's doing God's work, assist them wherever you can. First, he talks about Artemis and Tychicus. Who was, who was Artemis? If you don't have an answer, don't feel bad, because this is the only time we see Artemis' name in the New Testament. But who is Artemis then? Well, he's obviously a minister working with Paul because Paul said, I'm going to send him to you. And then he's going to send Tychicus with him. Who was Tychicus? Before, you know, he's a little bit more renowned, but not much. I had to look him up. And you know what that taught me? It doesn't have to be a big name personality that's serving the Lord. If you find somebody that's trying to serve the Lord, assist them wherever you can. Artemis and Tychicus. Tychicus was serving the Lord so that he accompanied Paul, if we look in Acts chapter 20, on the missionary journey from Corinth to Asia Minor. In Colossians chapter 4, we find that he delivers Paul's letter to the church of Colossae. In Ephesians 6, Tychicus delivered the letter to the Ephesians. So here's this guy faithfully traveling in a world. If you think the TSA is a problem flying around now, you should have been traveling in Tychicus's world. And yet he's going all over the place delivering letters from Paul. He's being a humble servant because grace changed his heart and life. And it made a difference. And he's doing good works that we don't know much more about Tychicus other than that. And then, verse 13, do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Who's Zenus? He's a lawyer. Now, don't think lawyer like our lawyers, okay? He might have been a lawyer who was very expert in the law of the Roman days. It's quite possible, often they use that term to say he was an expert in the law. He knew this book. And and we don't know it was Zenus because it doesn't tell us, but do your best to speed Zenus and Apollos on their way. Well, who was Apollos? Now, Apollos we know a lot about. He was an eloquent speaker. He was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, if you remember. He he was somebody that's followed up on Paul and actually been places Paul hasn't been discipling people. And God's using Apollos. And whether it's somebody that you don't know that's doing God's work or somebody that's got a big name, he says, send them on their way. And how does he tack, what does he tack on the end of that verse? Here's good works. And see that they lack nothing. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Titus primarily. We don't know a lot about Titus, but as far as we know, Titus was not independently wealthy. So when the Apostle Paul looks at Titus and says, Titus, I know you're on Crete, 
And Apollos is coming through, and Zenos is coming through, and they're doing important work. So as they come through, you need to make sure that they lack nothing. What is Titus going to have to do? You have to talk to the churches. Because that's where it's going to come from. And Paul's looking and saying, take care of these people as they come through, as they do these things. Make sure that they're taken care of in a way that they lack nothing. That's a pretty high bar. He's looking and saying, now, you don't have to take care of them so that they've got all their wants taken care of. But if there's needs, make sure they don't lack any need. As they're coming through, you all take care of these folks because they're doing the work of the Lord. That's what graciousness is. That's what doing good works is. You say, how do you know that? We're going to see that in just a moment as Paul finishes up this letter. But he's suggesting that those who have material ability to help those who are working in the ministry ought to be doing it. Now, I'm not telling you to give your pastor more money. You guys take very good care of me. But you'll find folks from time to time ministering for God. Are you going to take care of them? Are you going to help them? That's good works. That's a part of what's going on here. And then we see this restatement in chapter 3, verse 14 of the central theme of the whole book. It says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And Paul is talking about this not because of the goodness of our hearts, but because of the goodness of grace that's already worked in our hearts. And what is he saying here? Let our people. Who are our people? Paul looks out and says, let our people. He's talking about the church folks in Crete. He's talking about church folks in Crete that he didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about in chapter 1. They were a mess. They were struggling. But they were people who had the grace of God already working in their lives. And Paul says, let those people what? Let them learn to devote themselves to good works. Paul, why learn to devote themselves to good works? Especially when he's talking about giving and giving generously. There's a few people that just have the gift of giving. You know, they give and give, and there's some people, if there's a need, I almost don't want them to know there's a need because they know they're going to give again, and they probably shouldn't give again. But that's not the way most of us are bent. Don't we have a natural tendency to think, I took care of my needs, I took care of myself, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you take care of it? You didn't plan properly. You should, if you'd have done this better, and we forget the graciousness of God in our lives, because but for the grace of God, there would we be. And Paul's looking and he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Let them do what I'm telling them to do, and then watch God work in through them. Watch God bless their lives. Watch God be gracious to them over and over again as they are gracious to other people. But it's the kind of thing that we have to learn. I shared this, I guess it was with a membership class a little while back. I remember when I was a young man. I had just graduated from college. I was still single. I had an accounting degree. And I was accounting for every penny that came in because I was going to invest my money wisely. I was going to be well-to-do. It didn't work out quite as I expected. But as I looked at all this stuff, you know the first thing I started struggling with? I got a regular paycheck. It was more money than, I mean, I didn't get that kind of money mowing lawns as a college student. I didn't get that kind of money painting houses as a, as a worker at a crew as a college kid. And so I had all of this money and I'm figuring out what to do with it. And then I got to the point of Sunday came. And I just got paid on Friday. How much do I give God? And I struggled with that. I'll be honest. I looked at that and I said, you know, God, I want to give, I want to give out of a cheerful heart. And I can only be cheerful to a certain point. 
So I'm not sure this tithe business, that's, you know, that's the old law business. And we're not going to even dispute that because that's just wrong. You know? And I'm struggling with this with God. And I'm, and I'm giving money, but I'm not giving like I probably should have been given. And then I'm reading my Bible. back in, You know how you start your Bible reading every year in Genesis? I was pretty good at getting through Genesis. So I'm reading the Bible through Genesis. And I get to Abraham. And, and Lot gets taken off and all of his goods. And, and God touches Abraham's heart. And Abraham goes, chases after these kings and wipes them out and brings Lot and all the goods back. And he's got all of this bounty that he got from the king. Because he took them over, so he got all their goods. And he comes back. And the king of Salem, the high priest, the priest comes out, Melchizedek. And it says, Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils. And I'm looking at that, and I'm trying to, the worst way, I'm trying to put Abraham after the law. But he's not. Abraham's prior to Moses in the law in Sinai. And I looked at that, and I said, God, what are you trying to tell me? And God kind of, he didn't speak audibly to me, but as I'm working through it, I realized, God already told me. I just didn't want to hear it. And so I started giving to God. And I give God the first part. And I give at least a tithe. And I'm not telling you that so you look at me and say I'm a wonderful person. I tell you that because God is always taking care of me. God does for me abundantly above what I deserve. God meets my needs. And I'm not telling you that you give a tithe, you're never going to have a financial problem. But I'm telling you, a gracious God will take care of you if you're obedient. And I look at this as a people need to do good works. For me, that was a good work I struggled with. It's like, God, do you really? You don't need my money. Look at all these other people in the church. And God said, it's not that I need your money. I need your heart. Does it belong to me or to you? And I've never forgotten that. A lot of you, I don't know if you've read it. Donna Gunther, when she was here, she wrote a whole booklet on it. They were missionaries. And it was a whole booklet. She gave it to me to read, and I read it, and I thought, wow, God does the same thing in other people's hearts that he didn't mind, because the whole thing on the book was, I challenge you to give to God and see if he doesn't bless you like he said he would. And so all of those things, but here it's giving not only to God, but giving to others who are in need because it belongs to God. And the idea here, it's interesting. He says, so to help cases of urgent need. And again, be careful with that word urgent because I looked at that word urgent. I said, okay, if somebody's totally desolate, I got to do something. It's not what it means. It means they just have a real need. They have a necessity. Something's come up. Something maybe unexpected has come up. And it's not that they're destitute, but they don't have the means right now to do what needs to be done. And what is he saying? You that are blessed, you help them. Because it's being good. It's doing good works. It's showing an unsaved world what grace looks like operating in a life. And so that's where Paul goes. He goes where the money money actually meets the road, where the rubber meets the road. He said, what are you doing with your money? It's only one example, but it's an example that he uses because it's something most of us struggle with at one time or another. Are we willing to do these things? And then his concluding comments. We'll finish with this, and then next week we're going to come back and just look at what do we do with all these things. Last message next week on Titus. But his concluding comments here. All who are with me send greetings to you. Who's he talking about? Who are they all? He doesn't tell us. In fact, you know what he doesn't tell us? He doesn't even tell us where we are, where he is. There's no clue who he's talking about. So, Paul, why tell you that? Because, again, he's going back when grace works in our lives. We just want to fellowship and be with the people of God. And whoever he was with was saying, you know what, Paul, tell those folks in Crete we love them and greet them for us. Because we're Christian folks and we love one another. And I hope you never lose the love for one another. 
Never feel bad about sitting here and talking until half an hour, 45 minutes over church after church is over because you love one another. It ought to be that way. You know, if your pastor's walking around turning off lights, let him turn the lights off. If he turns them off on you, turn it back on. If he locks the door, the bar's pushed, you can go out. Just let the door swing behind you. But love one another. Care for one another. Greet one another. Be a part of the body because when there's not the divisiveness he talks about, that's how it ought to be. That's what makes being here such a wonderful thing. There's churches, I'll be honest, I've worked in churches in the past that I dreaded Sunday morning because I knew the contention that was there with people. I knew the divisiveness that hadn't been dealt with. I knew the problems that were there. I look forward to Sunday morning. You know, if you've got to drag yourself in, don't tell me, because I'm thinking it's wonderful. I love being with God's people. I love talking with people. Today I almost ran over an A because I was talking to one, talking to another, and I was like a squirrel riding across the road. But I just love being with God's people because that's the way he's created us. And we ought to love one another. And we ought to be that way because that's grace working in our lives. Is that where you are? If it's not, pray that God will impress upon you what grace ought to do for you this week. Reach out and touch somebody's life to make a difference in their lives. Because Paul finishes it this way. Not only do they greet you, but greet those who love us in the faith. He said, that's why the greetings are going around. There's those in Jesus Christ that just love us. and Let them know we love them too and greet them for us. And then he finishes with this. Grace be with you. No, that's not the last word in the book, is it? Were there people that probably gave Paul a hard time on Crete when he was going through there? Almost every church, somebody's going to give somebody a hard time. Were there people that Paul may have had to look back and say, well, I wish I hadn't had to deal with so-and-so. Paul looks at the folks in Crete and says, grace be with you all. Because God has been so gracious to me. My prayer is that God will continue to be gracious to you. And gracious to you because chapter 2, verse 11, grace changes your life. It teaches us. That it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. And Paul looked and said, I love you all. And you know what I want for you? That you live upright, godly, righteous lives. May you all experience his grace. And my prayer for our church this week is that we will all experience the grace of God and that it will change our lives. Let's pray. Father, I know it's a, it was a kind of a strange ending to a letter that was building up to the climax of grace, and yet it's your message to us. So God, I pray that you'd help us to take it to heart, to do what's written here. Lord, not to be divisive people, not to argue for the sake of arguing, or even for the sake of fun or entertainment, but God, to love one another, to let go of what isn't truly important, and to cling to grace. To cling to doing good works, to cling to making a difference in the lives of others, because that's what you called us to do. God, we thank you for these servants of yours at the end of this book, some of whom we don't even know really much of what they did, but you mentioned them. Maybe in part you mentioned them to teach us, Lord, whether we are renowned for what we're doing or just quietly serving behind the scenes that we're important to you. That grace working in our lives should make a difference whether people notice what we're doing or not. So God, help us to experience your grace this week. Help us to live your grace this week. And Lord, because of it, help us to be gracious people known for our good works toward others. For it's in Christ's name we pray.